I would urge folks, if you want to focus on the financial side, I would focus on profits over sales and revenue. Uh, if you want to focus on happiness, I would worry much less about size. It tends to be the case that most entrepreneurs I know who have businesses between five and 50 employees are much happier than those who have businesses with 100 to 500 to 5,000. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self, or the true self. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we had a roundtable on the power of voice and leadership with three fascinating artists. Today, we return to the traditional one-guest format. If you enter the phrase, top digital marketers in the world, in a Google search, chances are you will get a list with 10 names. And among those names, you will find Rand Fishkin, our guest for today. Rand earned the ranking because he dedicated his professional life to helping people be better marketers. I know this to be true by direct experience. Over more than 10 years, he has made me and my teams better marketers. His help came in multiple ways. His Whiteboard Friday videos on Moz.com, his contributions to the early editions of the book, The Art of SEO, which for a long time was the only truly comprehensive guide to SEO, his presentations at various conferences, or the SEO platform he founded, Moz.com. Well, my teams have incorporated a lot of Rand in their campaigns and websites, and they have gotten better results because of it. There is more to Rand than marketing, though. I asked him to be on this podcast because his book, Lost and Founder, is one of the most brutally honest and helpful books ever written about the reality of startups. It is candid and full of what Rand calls cheat codes for entrepreneurs. As a matter of fact, I recommend it to all the founders I mentor or advise. And if you're thinking about founding or joining a tech startup, you should go and get it right after you listen to this podcast. Or even better, if you like what you're hearing, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and I will pick my favorite review and send a free copy of the book to the author. Now, back to the show. Rand is on his second venture as the founder and CEO of SparkToro, an audience research startup. In our conversation, he shared a vision of the tech startup world that is very different from what you hear in the predominant discourse. He also explained in very practical fashion how his previous experience informed a number of key strategic decisions in building SparkToro. Of course, I did not miss the opportunity to ask him about the state of the art in the world of digital marketing and what brands can do to be more effective. It is probably not a big surprise that his belief as to where the opportunities are for marketers is what drove him to build SparkToro. As you know, every episode of our podcast finishes with a more personal conversation. And that is where Rand did something that no American had ever done in my 30 years in this country. He taught me a pasta trick I didn't know. So if you're a fan of spaghetti alla carbonara, make sure you listen until the end. Rand, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dino. Great. And I'll start with like, first question, what is authenticity to you? I think I go for a pretty classic definition there. I'm, I think that each person has their own uh, sense of truth about themselves. And many of us build layers on top of that for 
reasons of prestige or the impression that other people will have about us or for financial gain or all those kinds of things. And it's when you scrub away all those layers and bring it back down to what's real and truthful about yourself um, and why you're doing things the way you are that you find authenticity. Your journey has been pretty public at times. And you've definitely been pretty transparent um, when you've told your story. So I'm wondering, what are the two or three key moments when you realize this is who I am and this is who I want to be as a leader and as a manager? And then how has that manifested itself in your choices? Yeah, I mean, um, I think very early in my career, you know, a few years after dropping out of college and and starting the business that would eventually become Moz, which is you know the the software company that I founded. I guess one of two software companies I've founded now. Uh, but that for me was a time when I had a lot of a lot of self doubt and a lot of external forces sort of nudging me to believe that I wasn't good enough, that I had to prove myself to family and an industry and myself. And so I, I made a lot of decisions that were biased by that. I think what a lot of people call imposter syndrome or sort of, sort of a sense of not being worthy and not being good enough. And many of those decisions were around things like I, I need to push myself incredibly hard to you know, whatever it is, um, blog five nights a week and, and, and build this, you know, sort of successful, financially successful company. I need to, you know, raise venture capital. I need to prove myself inside this industry. Then I need to raise more money Then I need to build a bigger company. I need, a, you know, hundreds of people working for me, not just dozens. Uh, all of those kinds of decisions were in effect driven by a a sense that that if I didn't do them, I was not good enough, right? I, I think that was that was sort of one one half of the equation for me. And then the second the second time, you know, was kind of an awakening, I would say, in the uh, slightly later stages of my career, after you know having spent 12, 15 years building that business and looking around and realizing that it didn't. It didn't necessarily make me happy. It was not aligned with what I wanted to be doing personally and professionally. The, the financial components were confusing and created some very odd incentives, which I, you know, you know, I know you know about the venture capital industry and and how that funds companies and what it means uh, for founders, but my awakening was sort of this this realization of oh maybe maybe i can do this a different way that is the way that i want to do it for me and for the world that i want to build around me and for the relationships that i want to build and the type of impact i'd like to have and I, I suspect that happens with a lot of folks who over time you know they <laughs> they they stop being whatever you know in their 20s and and into their 30s and have those those awakenings and that that certainly happened for me. I'm thinking about there's certain points in the in your book when you talk about things that happened at Moz. Obviously, right now with Spark Toro, you had the opportunity to restart 
sort of fresh yeah. start anew. But at the same time, my assumption is that the leader you were when you started out Moz is very different than who you were even through your time at Moz. What what were some of the moments at Moz where you felt through that you made a significant change? Hmm. I mean, I think that starting a company and growing it is a constant learning process. So, you know, I would say every 18 months to two years, I was probably a very different person. I had different learnings and, um, yeah, tough to identify those precise moments, but certainly transitioning from consulting being the primary business to software made me a very different kind of entrepreneur and, and marketer and leader and product builder. I think that growing from a team of people who all knew each other to a team of people who you know, viewed each other sort of as separate groups. Engineering does this, marketing does that, product does this, design does this. Uh, that was another kind of big change um, and a very uncomfortable one for me. I, I don't ever want to do that again. I have no desire to build a company of more than 50 people. Yeah, it doesn't align with my interests. So yeah, I think I think those are big moments that many entrepreneurs I've talked to have have similar experiences. One of the things that struck me in the book is how thoughtful and mature were the the values at Moz. I know like there's moments where you know probably as a as an entrepreneur you're like oh maybe we were not that close to them but there's certainly a level of awareness that is and thoughtfulness in the way that the values are articulated. When did you realize that you needed to go through the process? What, what was the the spark that made you decide that you needed to actually sit down and articulate the values and put them on paper? Yeah, really simple answer. Uh, it was actually uh, one of our investors, Michelle Goldberg, gave me a copy of, I think, Good to Great, which is a you know, very well known business book now. And now, you know, in in hindsight, I think there's a lot of people who look at that book and go, ah, a lot of the conclusions are not correct and this oversimplifies and yada yada. But one of the findings in the book was that companies that articulated and lived up to their values tended to last much longer and be much more successful than those who did not. And so we literally used the process that was that was written down there to do it internally. I think it was a useful process. I think it was very good when we stuck to it and when we were small. And then as we scaled, it just became very, very, very difficult to build a team and culture around those values at scale and very difficult to maintain it through a leadership transition as well. So I don't know. For my last few years that I was on Moz's board of directors, you know, after I had stepped down as CEO, I encouraged the CEO, the new CEO, to change the values, right? To change tag fee. Like tag fee are are my values. I don't think they're yours. I don't think they're they're the company's as it presents itself today. And I think it's really terrible to have a set of stated values, of expressed values that you sort of put on the wall and the website that are not lived up to internally. I think that's actually worse than having no values statements written at all. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And let me also add that it is rare and refreshing uh, to see a founder who is willing to say, you know, my the company is I would leave my values, so go ahead and create some new ones. I wanna switch gear here. Something that surprised me from the book. I think that the, the thousands of people that have seen you 
speak at uh, marketing conferences that have followed your Whiteboard Fire Day videos on Moz and your blogging on Moz and on you know Spark Torah now, and that see you as a as a definitely a great leader in the industry, one of the pioneers of SEO, would be surprised if uh, they read about the imposter syndrome that you're talking about in the book. And I'm wondering, where do you think that comes from? Hmm. Let's see. I suspect that some of it is biology and some of it is whatever, culture, and some of it is upbringing, right? And I think that's those are generally the forces that shape us as human beings. And for me, a lot of my... Uh, almost all of my career has been feeling like I am not good enough and not worthy and that I need to do more, yeah, to prove myself to to myself and others. And yeah, it, it, it certainly is the case that no amount of sort of prestige or recognition can really fill up that hole. Temporarily, it can. <laughs> right? So <laughs> I think one of the reasons that I um, and relatively good at consistently, whatever, creating new content and publishing it and amplifying it and earning recognition from, from sort of the marketing world and, you know, getting on stages and speaking and all, all those kinds of things is because I have this, whatever, deep hole inside of me that can only temporarily be filled by the praise and accolades of others. And then, and then it needs to be refilled again. And that's uh, not a super healthy way to live, but it is a good way to be decently productive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that over time coming to terms with that, recognizing it, and then simply finding outlets, productive outlets, healthy outlets that are not abusive or problematic, uh, either to myself or people around me, that that works. Yeah. And speaking of productive outlets that are actually helpful to the people around you, your book is fabulous. As I mentioned, it's full of great, uh, you call them cheat codes for entrepreneurs actually recommended to all the founders that I work with and mentor. Do you know, in that theme, what are two or three tips that you could share with us now for people who are thinking about starting a business or are already running a startup? Um, I would strongly encourage folks to try and be as conscientious as possible about why they are building what they're building. What is driving their decision to create a company the way that they are doing it? it is that outside forces? Is that, you know, whatever, culture and press and prestige and external motivators? Or are, are there intrinsic motivations that are driving that and what are those and where do they come from? I think asking those questions is really hard. And oftentimes we don't we don't find the full truth of it, but that's that's okay. The process is still worthwhile. Uh, the second thing I would strongly consider is let's see, what I want to say is is the conditions for success and failure. I think if you can create a company where you don't have to do all that much to be considered a success in, to yourself and to your team and whatever for your industry, that is very, very powerful and hard to replicate. I, I think it's uh, frustratingly in direct opposition to the external forces that that kind of drive a lot of entrepreneurial motivation. So 
you know, most, most of the entrepreneurial industry, especially in our world, you know, like technology and marketing and software and, um, Western capitalism is very, very focused on size, size of company in terms of, you know, numbers of people and numbers of customers and revenue sales, personal wealth. Like those, those are the primary signals we're told to look for in entrepreneurship. And they're probably some of the least healthy ones. I, I would urge folks, if you want to focus on the financial side, I would focus on profits over sales and revenue. Uh, if you want to focus on happiness, I would worry much less about size. It tends to be the case that most entrepreneurs I know who have businesses between five and 50 employees are much happier than those who have businesses with 100 to 500 to 5,000. I think almost all of us are instructed to be envious and attempt to follow in the footsteps of, you know, people who've built giant businesses, but whatever, you know, Larry and Sergey at Google or, 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 or Bill Gates at Microsoft or, or Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And like, that's who we're supposed to worship. Terrible idea. Super terrible idea. You don't want to compare yourself to those people. Let's be real. They are hardworking and relatively smart um, and talented, but 90 to 95% of the reason that they are very, that they are so dramatically different from uh, someone who runs a 50 person business is well, they got lucky and they just, you know, most of society, including themselves, are unwilling to ascribe their success to luck because that takes away from the prestige of what they, you know, what they feel like they've accomplished and what they deserve and how they deserve to be treated differently and how they shouldn't pay taxes and yada, yada, yada. But uh, but reality is it, it is it's luck, timing, luck, market forces. Eh, right. That's um. That's just the way it is. So I, th these are, these are I think really good questions and really good um, facts to reflect on as you're building your own business. You don't you don't need to build it for somebody else. So I'm curious. From the time when you started Moz, has your own definition of success changed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at Moz, the definition of success once I signed that first venture term sheet was, you know, return. 10x, hopefully more uh, of the invested amount over the next, you know, seven to 10 years. And, and not just amount, but, you know, it also needs to be venture scale. So that the hope is that you raise future rounds and then are able to execute on that. You know, uh, our first round was a million dollars, right? First round was 1.1 million. So if we had returned 20x, you know, oh my God, we got, we got them $20 million back on their $1 million investment. They'd still sort of go, eh, that was a pointless investment. It's useless. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything th for the fund. You know, we should have blown that money on putting another million dollars into one of our other companies. Versus, right, what, what you really need to do is raise 10 or 20 or 30 more million dollars from them and then return 200 or 300 million to them. That's, that's success. And, you know, 90... 9% of venture investments don't return, I think it's 97% or something, don't return their goal target rate of return. And that, that works fine for them because the one or two that do make up for all the rest. But obviously, th that model of success for me was very much driven. Like The reason that I entered into those agreements is because I thought 
I had to prove that I was good enough, right? That I could play with the big kids, that I deserve to be on the playground. And now I, I, I do not care at all. I don't want to be included. I don't think, I don't think what the asset class or the model does for society or economics or politics or the world of finance or or the world of you know building stable competitive marketplaces is healthy at all. And, and so now I kind of go, why, why was I so obsessed with that? Oh, right. Cause I was reading TechCrunch every day and compare, you know, and I was hanging out with a bunch of other venture funded people and yada, yada. Uh, and so my definition of success really changed to reflect inwardly and say, what makes me happy? What do I love to do for better or worse? I love proving people wrong. Oh man. When someone says you can't do this, no way that's going to work. Oh my God. There's nothing more delightful. Like, Dino, you you know, you went to all those like SEO conferences and stuff, right? And you, you probably remember sometimes I'd be on, on stage and I'd be like, oh, here's this statement from Google. They say that when you search for something, and, you know, a bunch of people search for something and they click on it, that will not raise it in the rankings. Well, there's like 700 people in the crowd here. Let's give it a try. Let's just make sure that Google's right when they say this. So everybody in the audience, why don't you go search for wedding dresses, Boston? Everybody searches on their phone for wedding dresses, boss. All right, now click that fifth link down, you know, for so-and-so's wedding dresses. Okay, they, everybody clicks it. And then, you know, end, end of the talk 30 minutes later, hey, uh, check those rankings. Is, it, is, is that, that, are they still number five for everyone? And it's like, oh my God, they're number two now. <laughs> well, what do you know? Maybe Google was lying to us. I, I love stuff like that. You know, like that really, that really makes it. So proving people wrong, that's really exciting to me. Um, and so I knew with SparkToro that one of the things I wanted to do was prove that the venture model is not the only way that you can build a very successful startup that returns capital to investors, as long as those investors are not sitting in the, you know, in the, in the structure of venture. And so, you know, I raised money from 36 angel investors, and the hope is that, you know, we can we can be a more successful sort of startup for those investors than if they had put their money into a classic safe note that tried to raise venture type of thing. And same thing is true with what SparkToro does, right? So like, a, you know, there's a ton of disbelief in the, in the value of going and building a brand through whatever publications and people and sources of influence. Like essentially the market has bifurcated in, dig in digital marketing, right? The market's bifurcated, I'm sure you know this well, into I either do SEO by link building and keyword research and content and get all my traffic from Google, or I am in the influencer marketing world and I buy sponsored posts from half-naked people and that's how I get all my sales. It's like ignoring this really important part of how you build a brand online or offline, which is let me go find who my target customers are. Let me find all the sources to which they pay attention, the podcasts they listen to and the people they follow and the publications they read and the events they attend and the YouTube channels they follow, da, 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 right? all, all that stuff and go be in all those places. It works. Like it's very, very successful and it is completely underinvested. No one does it when I say no one. Two to three percent of you know the industry does it. It's just it's just really really weird, and uh, I think a big part of that is because it has no name. Like people don't have a name for it. So that's interesting to me. You know, for those who have followed digital marketing for the past twenty years, 
There was a group of thought leaders that included you, Eric Hanga, you know, the inbound crowd, the, the still crowd, who said, if you do SEO the right way, put in the work, um, you know, create great high quality content, great, get great links, then you will um, get results. In a way, this is sort of like the natural growth of that approach. You still need to put your work in, but this time is about, you know, finding the right influencers for your audiences and working with them in some ways to get uh, your brand in front of your audience. My sense is that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, content and SEO was a great way to build a brand. And today, content and SEO is a great way to get rewarded for, have, for having already built a brand. So if you've built a great brand that people like, know, trust, or you know their preference to click on, Google's bias to rank you, then investing in content and SEO is, is a great digital marketing tactic. And so SEO and content have become standard because they really benefit already existing businesses with existing brands. If you want to build a new brand, or you are a small business or an emerging business, or you're trying to grow your business substantially, um, from the small brand that you've got today, this is not a successful tactic. You are you are going to be competing with everyone. The cost per investment is going to be hugely high. The return on that investment is not nearly as great as it was a decade or two ago. The model just doesn't work that well. And so the, I think that this is whatever you want to call it, right? I think tragically, there's no name for it, but... Um, it sits somewhere between, it's like what influencer marketing used to be called before there were influencers. <laughs> like, you know, you remember seven years ago, if, if you and I said, oh, influencer marketing, that was like, yeah, yeah, go find the podcasts and publications and events and industry journals and trade sources and, you know, all the things that people pay attention to in this field and then go influence them through that. And then influencers became a thing. And now it's like, all right, I'm going to pay $500 to this shirtless guy and he's on a beach and he's going to endorse my product and he has a six pack. So that's it. God, that's not, you know, that's not influencer marketing to me, but that thing that it used to be called, that is a very, very successful way to build a business. I just want to restate something that you said to make sure that I understand it correctly, because that's an assumption that I've had and that it's a conversation that I've had in my work with a lot of clients, which is that basically at this stage, the investment required for a brand that already does not have brand presence or for a small business, the investment required to rank organically and to drive organic traffic is much higher than the return that they would get if you don't have an existing brand. Yeah, it's not. That's not universally true. It is possible that if you, you know, if you're absolutely the best of the best at SEO and content, you might be able to do it. There's like no doubt about it, right? And there's still a ton of people who do. But I, I think the challenge is it is not the highest ROI, best return uh, from a small investment. And that's what most SMBs need. Right, most SMBs, most local businesses, most new brands, most early stage companies—they need very high return on uh, a small to medium amount of effort, as opposed to let me put in a Herculean amount of effort to be the absolute best in the field uh, in, in at SEO and content. And oh, I'm competing against a thousand or ten thousand other companies for this traffic. Whew. 
man, there's only a few spots in the top rankings at Google. And besides that, Google is taking two thirds of the clicks for themselves. So my friends, you, you're just not going to win that way like you once could. Great. So I think this is an, an excellent spot to transition a little more into SparkToro because SparkToro, as you said, kind of recognizes the, that, these other opportunities that only a few people see. So what's the market opportunity that you're going after with SparkToro? And, and for the people who are not familiar with it, what does SparkToro do? Sure, sure. So the, you know, the thinking behind SparkToro is essentially, if I knew what percent of the audience I want to reach read publication X, Y, and Z, followed podcast A, B, and C, paid attention to social accounts, QR, and S. If I knew what percent of my audience followed and paid attention to them, I could align my budget and my marketing efforts and uh, my goals and tactics and strategy in a really smart way. But if I don't know, I, I am going to be either you know, over-investing in tactics that I've heard of that sound familiar or throwing a bunch of money at Facebook and Google and just letting their ad targeting sort out the problem for me. And so SparkToro is trying to fix that, is trying to answer that question, right? If I want to reach chemical engineers in the UK with some new fancy equipment or, I, I don't know, a, a software program that helps them with you know, CAD, uh, computer-aided design. How am I going to do it? Like, what? I don't know anything about chemical engineers in the UK. Uh, I, I guess I'll go to Google and search for uh, chemical engineering UK. Well, let's see who ranks well. Maybe maybe some of them could help me reach. It's very, very difficult to know, right? The, um, the best market research firms out there do very structured surveys and interviews to try and reverse engineer this, this problem. But those take six to 12 months, they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so they're inaccessible to early stage companies, SMBs. Casey and I, my co-founder and I saw some really smart agencies do incredible work on this front. What they did, you know, we thought this was genius. They took a list of all the email addresses of the company's customers, right? So, you know, whatever, people who signed up for the email newsletter or who had purchased the product previously or whatever. They took those emails and plugged them into full contact or Clearbit, some, some social connector, right? So essentially it's like, okay, well, you know, Rand at sparktoro.com, that is at Randfish on Twitter, and it's Rand.fishkin on LinkedIn, and it's um, you know, uh, whatever, Rand DeRoyter on Instagram and blah, 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 right? Here's here's all these connections. And then they built a crawler to go analyze, to go crawl all those social profiles and look at everything they followed and talked about. And then they aggregated that data and presented it back to their client and said, here you go. This is what your audience pays attention to in which percentage. You know, and maybe, you know, the match rate is 40% or 50%. Not everybody with an email address has a Twitter account or an Instagram account or a Facebook account or a LinkedIn account, but enough of them do that you can get some statistically significant samples. That methodology to us was genius. Like, well, you can't do it any better. You don't have to ask someone, hey, what podcasts do you listen to? They're not going to be able to remember off the top of the head all the ones they subscribe to and like what they follow, blah, 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 blah. No, the way to do this is to get the data passively 
from a source that is public on the web. And that's what these social accounts are. So with enough uh, social media presence, right, enough of the human population participating in social media, you can get this data at scale for nearly any audience. That was what gave us the idea for SparkToro. Like, what if we could do this so that instead of, you know, custom contracting with an agency that's going to do all this work and or building it yourself and building a crawler and da 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 da, da we'll do it for everybody. And that's what SparkToro does. So you came up with this great idea. You are armed with your cheat codes from your first startup. How did you go about building SparkToro? What are the lessons that you brought in? And what are some of like the key decisions in the way you set up SparkToro that were influenced by your experience? Yeah, I think, I think we've already talked about most of them, right? So keep the company incredibly small. It's just me and Casey. We use consultants and agencies for basically everything. You know, for for finance, for analyzing our beta, for user testing, for you know, uh, content categorization, blah blah blah. Everything we we use con contractors and agencies. It's been fantastic. I love working with them. I think they like working with us. We pay well and we pay on time, and then our costs are very well aligned. We also took raised money in a really different way, right? We raised an angel round with a unique structure. If you're curious about it, you can you can Google SparkToro funding. We we open sourced our docs so that other startups can use those um, without paying an attorney a fortune. And we built the prototype of the product in about maybe nine, 10 months, and then spent over a year testing, refining, and iterating it until it was not a minimal viable product, but a very impressive first launch. And you know that really, really helped us to grow and to be seen as a, a useful, valuable tool right from day one. Because I knew that a lot of people in the industry were going to pay attention as soon as we launched. You know, we, and we spent all that time kind of building up an email marketing list uh, that we could announce to. All of those things, very different from my, my first go around. Yeah, and on your website, you talk about being a zebra versus being a unicorn. And I know that there's a small but hopefully growing group of founders and startups that are thinking about doing things a different way. And I'm thinking, for example, I know you're good friends with Will Reynolds and some of the recent announcements that he made about Seer um, Interactive. I'm wondering, are there conversations among these leaders? And, and, and if yes, like what are some of these conversations? Yeah, yeah, a lot of folks um, in that world. So that that same page where we talk about being a zebra versus unicorn, you can go check out the um, the zebras unite movement, which is Ania Williams and Mara Zapeta um, and a couple of other women who are you know like leaders in this movement around um, a different kind of way to build a startup. I think the indie funding and indie startup and bootstrap startup worlds are all you know similarly somewhere between orthogonal to and anti-venture capital um, and, and anti-unicorn. And certainly we are as well. In terms of the conversations that happen around that, um, a lot of it is, you know, it's things like, what is enough? What, what is good enough? What is enough growth? What is enough um, revenue? What is enough personal wealth? What does it mean to be a conscientious and thoughtful and empathetic leader and founder and company? Uh, and what is the, 
what is the way we want to participate in the world around us? Right. So I think those are those are big picture conversations. And then a lot of the detail level stuff, like I'm I'm part of a number of entrepreneurial groups like this, and a lot of the detail level stuff is really similar to what venture back startups are talking about. Like, how do I hire the right kinds of people, find good agencies and consultants, and how do I, you know, whatever, do better marketing and how do I get my sales up and you know all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of tactical detail level stuff that's really similar and familiar. It's the big picture conversations that are different. Thank you for this part of the conversation. I'm going to go now to the personal stuff. You have like obviously your life has been pretty consumed by your work whether yeah. you liked it or not, but that said you have some interests that are not SEO related, I assume more work related. What are some of your your outside passions and how do they impact your life at work? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, folks who follow me online probably can see that I am very interested in colorful sorts of men's fashion, um, that I like to cook a lot. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff you'll see from me uses food or food and beverage world related examples. And I do a lot of cooking at home, uh, which occasionally finds its way into my presentations and talks and, you know, content and sharing. I am, well, during COVID, I've been a, I think I'm not alone here, but a uh, voracious consumer of of television content. <laughs> um, and it's, some of it's pretty darn good. I, I think we're, I think we're in a relatively new golden age of, of episodic content series we just finished Dairy Girls on Netflix, which I thought was goddamn delightful. Just, just so amazing. So yeah, that's been fun. What are some of the business phrases and cliches that drive you crazy? I know some of them can be found by people who follow you, but like, yeah, gosh, I really there's there's so many I dislike. Uh, one of the ones that actually came up this morning, I think I know, someone was replying to someone on Twitter and they copied me in. Uh, was correlation is not causation. And and I feel like lots of people like to take that quote and cut off the end of it because the end of it is, but it sure is a strong hint. How do you how do you logically and thoughtfully have a lot of respect for anecdotal evidence that comes from singular experiences? Like people love, you know, teardowns of, oh, here's how Amazon did X, or here's how Shopify did why? Here's how Canva built a bajillion links. But they don't want to see aggregated, assembled data at scale with correlation numbers, statistically significant correlation numbers from thousands or millions of events. That doesn't, that makes no sense to me at all. Both of those things can have value. You don't have to rain on one parade and keep the sun shining on the other. That seems really silly to me. I also hate content is king. That's a meaningless phrase that does nothing for anyone. I think when I see or hear that, I tend to think that someone just found their first marketing guru on YouTube. <laughs> and <laughs> eh, such is the way. I don't particularly resonate with the uh, with the entire concept of link building anymore. I think it's pretty darn obvious, should be very obvious to anyone and everyone that if all you're after is Google rankings, A, that might not be the best thing in the world. Like you might want to diversify some of your marketing and B, links are not all there is to Google. 
there are tons of people with very few links outranking lots of people who have many, many more. And so your whole focus on like, hey, we hired a digital marketing agency, we expect to get 50 new linking root domains per month, and we want them to be domain authority X. Oh, man, you are living in 2008 SEO, my friend. Like it is, the time has passed and you need to evolve. I don't know. I don't know where you were in 2008 when SEO was like derided as this spammy thing that no one should do. But here it is 2021. And now you're practicing SEO like that. That's that's pretty nuts to me. So, yeah, that's uh, that's very strange. I think it's also obvious. I'm sure, you know, you've seen this, Dino, right? Which is Google obviously, obviously likes it when you get your brand mentioned. You don't need a link. Like if the New York Times writes about you and your brand, yeah, your rankings are probably going to go up and you don't need them. You don't need to reach out to them and get them to link to you. And if they do link to you, nothing is probably going to change because no intelligent deep learning system built by the world's best paid and smartest engineers at Google is going to reward. Oh, well, look, I mean, they they got an actual link as opposed to just a brand mention. We, we, should, we should rank them higher. Get out of here. We, we, what do you what do you think's going on? Uh, I knew I could count on you for this section. <laughs> Finally, a section I called food for your body or food for your soul. You can choose whether you have a favorite recipe or drink. Oh, why settle for only one? Oh, go for it. Or the other part was it food for your soul? I know you mentioned dairy girls, but it could be you no know, art, music, books, whatever. Oh man. Whatever you want to share with our audience. Sure. My gosh. Uh, let's see. I was reading, what's her name's book? Uh, Stacey Abrams, the, the um, politician from Georgia. Um, and she, she wrote this book called Lead from the Outside that uh, has been on my desk for uh, the last couple of weeks and very, very impressive. I mean, she's an incredible person, but her, um, her writing is, is superb as well. So I'd, I'd certainly put that on your list. In terms of art, uh, let's see, this is an odd one, but I, I found the, um, the Japanese design, Good Design Awards the other day. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever checked out their website. It's, um, it's a little old school and odd. But oh my God, they link to some incredible stuff. I highly recommend checking that out. I think the, the URL for that is g-mark.org. So a little bit of an odd one there, but uh, g-mark.org. Uh, let's see, in terms of music, oof, gosh. Well, most people give me just what you, I give all the category because some people love music. So you don't oh, have to give one I in everything. No, 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 no. All of them. If you want to do all of them, because <laughs> you, know, you want to over deliver, I'm not going to stop you. But okay, if you're, right. if you're uh, forced, you don't worry about it. And then, you know, and if you have a, we have plenty here, but if you have any particular food that you like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of pasta, so I I cook a lot of pasta and um, am very particular about it. I think I'm I'm almost as picky as an Italian, not quite, but um, I do I do have a favorite carbonara recipe. It doesn't rank in Google. Yeah, it's too good to rank in Google. Apparently, I don't know. They only want to give you the crappy ones. Uh, but if you go to Serious Eats or if you search for carbonara Serious Eats. Their recipe is the best one. You got to use a double boiler yeah. to uh, whisk the eggs, uh, the eggs and cheese together mm -hmm. in order to get the, the perfect sauce consistency. And then make sure that the uh, the pasta itself that that you've 
dumped in the pancetta or your guanciale, whatever you're using. Uh, you want that to be cooled down before you add the eggs because you cannot let them scramble. That ruins that ruins the dish. So that check out the serious seats version. That's the best one. That's food. I mean, I feel like that's soul food. Yes. I, and I have to tell you, like the carbonara is one of the, as an Italian, you know, born and raised in Italy, the carbonara is one of those things that you come here and it's impossible to get a good one because they cook the eggs, they put cream in it, et cetera. And so. No, cream. Oh, I mean, no, somebody who it. gets it. It's just very special. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta, I mean, you have to do it right. Like, look, in Italy, right, in a, in, a, in a great chef's kitchen who makes it all the time, they've got the timing down perfectly, right? So your nonna, she knows, how, she knows exactly when to turn off the stove and how many seconds to wait before she adds the egg and, and just, you know, mixes it into the pasta. But you're never going to get that timing unless you make it, you know, three times a week for 300 weeks. You will, you will never get that timing. So instead, cheat. Use the double boiler. I promise you, it, it's it's a miracle. That's fabulous. I'll give it a try. Fantastic. Well, Ren, thank you so much. It's been great having you on. My pleasure, Dino. And thank for your insights, recipes, and great thoughts. Oh yeah. Next time, next time, you know, we'll have to uh, talk about bolognese and whether you can add a little bit of tomato or not. Yeah, <laughs> that's like a whole other set of religious debates on how long you choose it. That's like, you know, you, you, you like really the hornet nests of Italian cooking. <laughs> Is there a God? Hey, we don't worry about that. Are you allowed to add tomato to uh, Bolognese? Whoa, that's, you're talking serious stuff here. Exactly. Well, fabulous rent. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or a review, tell a friend or more, and post about it in social media. As I promised at the top of the show, I will send a free copy of Rent's book to my favorite Apple podcast review. So if you really like the show, go ahead and write a review. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you will know immediately when a new episode comes out. And if you like music, stick around, because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share another song by Susan Catano, actually a song by her new band, Honest Mechanic. The best place to find Rand is at sparktoro.com, spelled S-P-A-R-K-T-O-R-O.com. There, you can learn about the company, read Rand's fabulous blog, and if you go in the About section, you will find Rand's bio and all of the connections to his social networks. You can find me online at al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. So al4ep.com. Drop me a note. I am a dino at al4ep.com. You can also find the show on Facebook. Search for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People on Instagram at al4edp. And that is also the same handle for Twitter. So AL4EDP. So once again, Twitter and Instagram at AL4EDP. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Dino Catania, with additional production support by Fullcast. The theme music was written and recorded and produced by Nicolas Catania, who also played drums and keyboards on it, with guitar by Tony Savarino and bass by Jesse Williams. Okay, we are finally at the end, and as promised, there will be a song, and the song is called Outsider, and it's the second single by the band Honest Mechanic, 
which includes my wife Susan Catano and Paul Hansen, member of uh, Boston's famous indie band The Grown Up Noise. Enjoy! an outsider 